You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Liz Williams is one of the co-founders of the Afara Collective. She spent time in Taiwan as a Thomas Watson Fellow and a Fulbright Scholar. Jennifer Ho heads up Afara's film club and is originally from Taiwan. Liz and Jen talked about why the work of Afara matters to them, the types of training and programs that Afara will offer, and how Afara is about creating safe, brave spaces to have difficult conversations about systemic oppression, racism, and bias. After seeing how the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and others last year sparked Black Lives Matter protests globally, and led to greater dialogue about systemic oppression and anti-racism, Liz and her co-founder, Jules Saunders, were inspired to create Afara. Afara invites everyone, regardless of ethnic background, to work on their personal biases. Liz and Jen talked about why the work of Afara matters to them, the types of training and programs that Afara will offer, and how Afara is about creating safe, brave spaces to have difficult conversations about systemic oppression, racism, and bias. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great. So can you tell me what is the Farah Collective and what motivated you to start it? How did that idea come about? So last year, um, with the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Amal Arbery and the civil unrest that followed, um, my co-founder and I had a lot of feelings about what was happening in this country and what we should do about it. Um, it was the first time that I felt like I didn't know if I had a place in this country. And I knew the best way to combat that feeling was to put that energy into something productive. Um, we were really inspired by the, the people who were out protesting, um, that it wasn't just Black people out marching for Black issues, um, that it wasn't just something happening in the U.S. There were marches all over the world. And so we really um, felt like this was a great time to start something that would involve everyone in the work of being an anti-racist. Um, one of the things that we saw last year after the protests was that people were reading books and watching movies and talking to their friends and in some cases being told not to talk to their friends because their Black friends were tired. But we knew that if we wanted to really see long-term change, that kind of DIY, learn about on your own approach is really not the most effective. And so we set about creating a platform and organization that A, welcomes people no matter where they are in their journey to anti-racism, that is open to people no matter what their ethnicity is, because we feel like this big issue of systemic racism is about all of us. It's not just a system for whites and black folks. And we wanted to create programming that would allow people to really dig more deeply into their own personal biases and to do the inner work first before they go out and start trying to change others or make action. So Afara means um, bridge or people coming together in Yoruba, um, the West, West African language. And that's what we're trying to build. We're trying to be a bridge with communities. We're trying to be a bridge from old way of thinking about anti-racism work, which tends to focus, again, only on white, whites and blacks and often is about guilt and shame more than, you know, taking personal responsibility and freedom and connection. And yeah, where we're creating courses and programming that will allow people to engage with this work in ways that are fun and community-based and introspective. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm really glad to hear that. I did feel that a lot of um, what was going on after the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot of talk about Black and white and 
I really wonder what people in between Asians or brown or other minorities, like what their place was in the narrative. So I think it's really great that you're doing this. Could each of you introduce yourself briefly to my audience and like, you know, talk about what your upbringing was like, where you grew up, and if you personally had any early experiences with racism or systemic oppression? I want to let Jen go first. Um, Jen and I have been friends for a long time, and she was one of our very first Afara volunteers. And I admire her so much, and I would love for her to talk first because Jen's a perfect example of not only people who are doing this work themselves, but people who really understand why it's important for all of us to be involved. So I'm going to let Jen take the lead. (laughs) Thank you, Liz. Um, So for me, I'm originally from Taiwan, and I grew up in Australia. That's why I learned my English. So I always joke that I have a very culturally confused accent. And um, I moved to the United States about 10 years for work. And currently I'm working as a professional translator and interpreter. Um, I love the idea that to transfer meaning from one language to another or from one culture to another. So I feel that's very in line with what Afara is about. For me, what I'm very excited about Afara and being one of the few first volunteers to being Afara is the whole idea of coming from empathy and coming from context. Because I think a lot of time um, for me, you know, I, I personally found very daunting is to understand such a complex issue and wondering how this relates to my life. And that is especially evident when I am sharing what I learned or talk to people, friends, families around me. That's when this context is very, it's, it's very obvious that the different context is what's causing either the misunderstanding or the disconnection. And so for me, it has been difficult talking to my own family about my passion and all these interesting and important things I learned about racial inequity. Because growing up in Taiwan, you know, it, we just see Taiwanese, right? And we get very fascinated by foreigners. And that's about it. And we have all these expectations, anticipations, ideas about foreigners that is only in the context, say, for example, in Taiwan. And so for me, coming out here and being exposed to that different context is what I think it's Afara is bringing to everybody is to really connect through context before we make other people wrong and to really understand each person's journey and stories and find the common ground, of course, with the very clear goal of racial equity. So that's a little bit about me and what I am excited about Afara. Have you um, experienced um, any racism or discrimination since you've been in the U.S. or any systemic oppression yourself? So I love this question because sometimes I feel I'm expected to say things like I've been discriminated against, right? I will tell you this one little story. Um, When I first got to the United States, I had a really, really thick Aussie accent. Like I will say things like, you know, give me some water. Let me go to, um, you know, the petrol station. And I remember answering call for my boss one day and telling the person he, he wasn't available. You know, I'll get him to call you back. And then this guy said to me, judging from your accent, which is not your first language. And I had options, right, at that moment. I could say, wow, that's against my race or, you know, like go that route. But for some weird reason at that time, I just thought, wow, this guy is 
this whole Aussie accent, you, you know, idiot. <laughs> like, you know, I kind of felt like it's a reflection on this person, like, and his context. And it wasn't so much about me. Having said that, it doesn't mean that people are not experiencing justice. But I think it also shows me that moment also gave me a great sense of power of how can I connect with this person from his context and whatever he's doing towards me, it's his lack, not me. So I felt I've experienced something very similar along the way, but the way I interpret it is always, maybe you get to travel more <laughs> or maybe you get to be exposed to, to, to different culture. And so again, I think that's what Afara is bringing is to expose our community and connect our community so we can maximize and expand our context. So what was your response to him then? I think I actually joked, like, it's, it's called Australian accent. Yeah. And, and I think it really caught this guy off guard. And of course, this is something for him to think about as well, because many Americans, um, people from the US that I came across, they always think they have certain perception about Australia, which is like, very biased and not true <laughs> and not accurate. So I just thought that was a great moment for him to, to really think about. But then I also wonder, what if I was defensive? How would that conversation go down? Right. Well, humor is a really great way to diffuse situations. Um, Liz, I'd like to pose the same questions to you. So I um, am originally from Chicago, grew up there, came out to L.A. for college. And then after college, I moved abroad for eight years. I spent most of that time in Europe, in Paris, and I spent uh, about three years of that time in Taiwan. Um, and it was so eye-opening and so formative in the way that I not only see the world, but the way that I approach all of my relationships, especially with new people. And so, you know, Chinese culture and Taiwanese culture is something that I love so much and met so many great people there. And it really informs the way that I, that I look at the world. And so coming back here, I experienced... I wouldn't say racism when I was in Asia, but it's, you know, I understand that it comes from a lack of understanding and a lack of exposure. So I heard, you know, comments that would be upsetting, um, but it was usually out of curiosity and people like just not knowing, you know, what the Americans were about. There's a very distinct expectation that Americans are white, right? And so living in Asia, there were different things that came up against um, based on those expectations that people had. It's funny, during during what was happening last year, there was a lot of talk about what allyship is. Seeing people out marching from all these different ethnicities, really, it really touched me. But I also was very present to the people who were not out protesting, the people who were not making statements, even people who I considered to be friends um, from different ethnic backgrounds. And I remember when everything started happening after the, the killings of the Asian women in Atlanta, and, you know, all the violence against Asian people, I had so many conversations with, um, with my Black friends who were saying, you know, they didn't show up for us, and so why should we show up for them? It made me really sad. I feel the same sense of solidarity with my Asian brothers and sisters as I do with my Black brothers and sisters. And so I had many conversations that would sometimes get heated with people around the importance of seeing each other as human beings and understanding, as Jen said, that people are coming from different contexts. 
And that ultimately, especially as people of color, you know, we are all in this fight together. What affects me affects you guys. And I think it was a big wake up call last year for many Asians to see that like, hey, like, there's this underlying sense of racism and hatred towards you guys too. It's not just about what's happening with black people. And so to the extent that we can fight alongside one another and really build bridges of understanding between our communities and also understanding our own relationship to keeping these systems in place. You know, there's, there is anti-Black racism in the Asian community. And I think it's good for us to understand that and for Asian people to talk about that amongst themselves. But ultimately, I, I do think that like the key for us to get through this is for all of us to be on the same page about why it's important to see each other as human beings. You know, Liz um, mentioned something about, you know, the, the event last year. And um, the, the one thing that I wanted to point out is the reason and how I started this journey, I, and I'm learning every day, I think anti-racism is a living practice. Like, it's, it's not like there's no end point. Every day I'm observing my own bias thoughts uh, and how I'm showing up. And I think what was incredible which Liz provided to me personally, was a safe space for me to go to her and ask about the things that I will honestly be probably very embarrassed or ashamed to, 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 to bring up. But if we continue to let that like embarrassment and, and shame of not knowing to stop us having a conversation, then I find it very challenging to move forward. So I think the question becomes, how do we create a safe space so people can come and just chat about what we know and what we don't know, but nobody's making anybody wrong. And I think it's extremely important. People who have been fighting before us and doing this work, they are incredible. Like they are role models. They are what's keeping us moving forward. And there is an opportunity for a safe space where people like me who wasn't educated on this topic at all to, to just keep learning and then share what I learned. And I, again, I think just this is what I'm so excited about, Farah. Yeah, we talk a lot about, about safe spaces and we also talk about brave spaces, right? It's not, we know that people are not going to get it right every time. And we know that some of these conversations are uncomfortable, right? But if we don't have them, there's no way to move forward. And so we feel like people who are coming to this work with with good intentions that's enough you don't have to say the right thing you don't have to ask the right question there's no wrong question it's more about being here and being willing and if we're all willing then we can we can move forward together right it's really important to suspend the judgment i think that helps a lot can you also talk about how you started the organization what were the first steps and how long did it take to get it all set up so we initially last year when all the talk about diversity, equity and inclusion work was happening and we we're thinking about how we wanted to set up and um, we were debating if we wanted to do something that was more geared toward companies or more geared toward individuals. Um, we feel like this is inner work um, and it is primarily geared toward individuals, but this kind of work can happen in companies as well as with individual people. But my co-founder Jules and I set out really in the beginning, just finding people who were willing to join our team and help us put together our structure and our programming, 
Um, so we've been at this since last since last June, um, and we we built a team at our height of about sixty volunteers working across various teams. Um, we decided to go as a nonprofit entity structure. So it took us, I guess, until the end of last year, we were primarily focused on building a team. We've applied for our five hundred one c three status um, as a nonprofit. We're registered as a nonprofit corporation. So now we're in the phase where we're thinking about launching programming. That's amazing that you've gathered sixty volunteers already. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an, it's been an interesting journey with that. We have a we have a core of people who are super super committed, like Jen, who's like our ride or die. <laughs> and then we understand that, like you know, with last year with COVID and people being home, it was easier to recruit people, you know, to donate their time because time is all they had. But now, as things are opening up and people are getting their lives back, you know, we have various levels of engagement. So not everyone's working full time, but we have a great core of people who are super committed. So that leads me to my next question. What have been some of the challenges that you faced in the work that Afara does? From my point of view, one of the challenges is having such a large team um, spread across the United States. We have people in the, from L.A. to New York to Florida to Minnesota. Um, and so the coordination part can be a challenge with time differences in people's schedules. Jen heads a team. She's, le- she's leader of our film club team. I'd be curious to hear what she thinks about her experience. My experience with working with volunteers, um, I think, is being mindful, like everybody's a volunteer. So it's like we're not running, you know, a private organization. And it's to, to really balance that out. The challenging part for me, I think, is knowing that I can learn and teach as I go. I think for many volunteers, they join because they want to learn more for themselves. But then when it comes to the sharing part, people tend to hold back and wonder if I know enough to share. And so I think that's definitely one of the challenges we get to encourage the volunteer to let's just learn with the intention of sharing, right? That's one thing. And then the other one is let's just be super focused. If we only have one hour a week, let's just be focused and intentional for that one hour week. And outside of that, we get to have our lives. So I think it's balancing just different aspects of everybody's life within the Afara team. And we're, we're also very much a collaborative organization. And so that also can be a challenge. We, you know, we're a collaborative organization, we're a startup. So sometimes it feels like we're building the car, driving the car, and people are jumping in and out of the car at the same time. <laughs> um, so managing that level of ambiguity um, as we're building and iterating um, is also something that is an opportunity, but it's also could be challenging. Yeah. Yeah, but exciting as well. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Afara is uh, organized? Because you mentioned that Jen is the head of the film club. Yeah, so we currently are set up as a nonprofit and we have various teams working within Afar. So we have a strategy team, which is um, focused on our strategic plans, but also our development. We're also starting our fundraising um, starting next week. Um, we have a programs team dedicated to creating our courses and our content that's going out to individuals um, and our audience. We have an operations team, which is at this time more about managing our volunteers, um, but also our internal systems and um, finance and accounting. And then we have a, a marketing team. We primarily have only been marketing on social media up until now, but we have a, a team dedicated to that as well. 
And I remember when Liz first invited me. I mean, we talk about Afara all the time. Like I was on the side, just being a, a very supportive friend. But I remember when they first approached me to really talk about inviting me to join. What really attracted me is the whole idea of having weekend trainings where people can sign up for a training and go into a training room. Like think personal development, like mindset, right? Leadership programs. Except we're going to be talking about racial equity and how we create that through empathy, and I thought that is such a refreshing and just different approach. And you mentioned about like how does this film club work? So on the side, just to create a community and support people to sustain, you know, this living practice,、um, we have a film club and we have a book club. And for example, for the film club, it's each each、um, quarter is about six sessions, and the the way I describe it is is an interactive and engaging space for for the participant to discover personal bias and cultivate deeper empathy for a better world. And so, so for example, we're about to launch our Seeing and Unseeing Afaras film program. And imagine being able to just be yourself and exchange your authentic point of view. Very exciting thing about the film club is that it's a space where you know we get to watch a few films, cool films, but at the same time, it's a it's a brave space where the participants can practice deep listening to practice how to authentically express their point of view. And not feeling like being attacked, like opening up that space. We're gonna do that through watching films and having interactive activities or introspective questions. It's building this work into people's daily life, and I think it's something very exciting and sustainable. Yeah, I think that's great. Film club and a book club is a very tangible and relatable way for people to, to give context and a way something concrete to talk about. And I imagine that, especially since COVID, we've done things so virtually that now you can do it that way too. To have like a virtual movie night or something with people all across the country, or maybe even around the world, possibilities are endless. So you can really like broaden your reach with your work. I think what's really cool about going virtual or being forced into going virtual is that it literally frees us up from the constraint of time and space. And if we're talking about connecting individuals, sharing stories, what's a better tool than having virtual opportunities to do such living practice? So it's it's just I'm super excited about it. And I think Liz and Jules have an incredible vision. Yeah, I mean, we we we're looking to create like a whole ecosystem of offerings for people to engage with. So, in addition to our film and book club and our courses, we're thinking down the line about having a podcast and a YouTube channel and programming for youth、um, to really engage with people, kind of where they are.、Um, we're also looking at、um, doing programming in other languages. We realize that there is definitely a need for this kind of work to happen with people who with whom English is not their first language. And so, eventually, we would love to programming all. In Chinese, for people who are either overseas and planning to come here, or people who have companies、um, in the U.S.、Um, with primarily, you know, Chinese-speaking、um, employees, where we can go in and do these kinds of trainings. Because it, where else can they learn about this, right? There's, there's, <laughs> there's no real guidebook. Right, you come to the U.S. and it's so different from from other countries in terms of us being this melting pot of people trying to understand each other. So we we can make a real impact there too. 
Wonderful. I'm really excited to be one of the first to interview and to bring uh, your organization to people and let them know about your offerings so that they can participate. Did you want to talk a little bit more about your fundraising? Because you said you're going to start fundraising next week. And by the time this podcast is out, people will probably be able to do that. Sure. So we um, are starting our crowdfunding campaign starting next week. Um, that's uh, the week of July, was that the 12th? Our campaign will be on GoFundMe and we're primarily raising money to continue to develop our courses and programming to be able to pay curriculum developers and facilitators. Until now, we've been 100% volunteer run. Um, and so we want to be able to bring in the best people to help us with creating content. That is where we are with fundraising. You know, our vision is empathy and action. And so we realize that this is a, it's about so much more than just giving people facts. It's about really thinking about how we can take those facts and pose questions to people that allow them to think more deeply about this and how it relates to them. And so in order to take action, we need to raise money. And so we're excited about, about our camping starting next week. That's great. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about Afara or any advice that you have for others who would like to set up a similar community? Community is important. And so I, I definitely think if you're if you're looking into setting up a community, I think it should be a reflection of the change that you want to make in the world. And that's something that we're really proud of with a community that we have put together of volunteers is that we are doing the work within our organization that we're hoping to take to the world. So we have tough conversations amongst ourselves. We have trainings for our volunteers. And so I, w- I would advise, you know, if you, anyone who's looking to build a community, want to be open to the fact that like not everyone in the community will all have the same ideas about the way things should go, that if there's a space where people can be open and authentic in their communication, that you can create something that can be really beautiful to give to the world. Jen, what would you add about community creating? I think it's to remember that we, we, do, we live in an abundant world and it's not one or the other. There's different approach for different people. And so whenever you know someone out there that's having a vision of shifting the world, shifting how we see things and connecting people, go for it. It's a lot of and, and it's not but. Mm-hmm. And just because we of Farah choose empathy in action as our approach, you know, it absolutely means that our approaches also work, also could work, and also are important. And so I think it's to really support each other and to, to really lift each other up in this work because it's, it's meaningful, it's fun, it's challenging, and we get to support each other. I think so often the, the idea of community can be restricted to people who are like us. And so one of the things that we are really trying to do is expand what the definition of community means. A smaller world, a bigger community. It doesn't matter if we're, if we're in LA and you're in New York and we have people in Taiwan who are interested in being part of this community. As Jen said before, I mean, living in this new world with Zoom and, you know, being connected online, we really are excited about building a community that can be global, right? It's of, of individuals who are like-minded and, and committed to this work. Uh, and I do want to say, I took a look at your social media, and I know that you're saying it's not just about giving people information, but I do find your uh, social media, your Instagram, very informative, like different facts um, that you're sharing about the different groups. So I want to commend you on that. Um, and that being said, like, how can people learn more about Afara? So we are on Instagram at We Are Afara. We're also on Facebook. Our website is weareafara.org. 
Um, you can also feel free to email me or Jen. <laughs> I'm Liz at weareafar.org. And we, you know, are, are always looking for people who are interested in collaborating. So please, please reach out to us. Great. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for um, taking time out of your schedule to be on the podcast and let people know about the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Felicia, for allowing us to talk about empathy in action. I've been speaking with Liz Williams and Jennifer Ho about the Afara Collective. To learn more about Afara and their GoFundMe campaign, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com, where we will share links to items mentioned in this episode. Talking Taiwan publishes new episodes weekly. It's thanks to the support of listeners like you that our work is made possible. You can help us grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. Supporters can snag a Talking Taiwan tote bag, be invited to a quarterly AMA or Ask Me Anything session with me, Felicia Lin, the host of Talking Taiwan, or receive advanced notification of future guests. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or help others discover Talking Taiwan by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.